0: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of
1: Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is Friday, and you know what that means. It means it is time for another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Now, I have a really interesting guest lined up for you guys today, a man who is both a fingerprint expert and a fellow podcaster, and we got some really interesting stories to talk about and really interesting things about how the fingerprint process works that he's going to share with us today. But before I introduce my guest, I just want to ask a favor of you guys. I want to let you guys know a way that you can help us out here on Lions of Liberty. You can help us to grow the show. You can do this in a simple way, just by buying what you would normally buy through Amazon, through our affiliate link. Now, you can do this by going to lionsofliberty.com Amazon. It's not going to cost you anything more. When you use that link, we will get a small little kickback that will help us to continue to produce this outstanding content that you guys obviously enjoy because you're listening to this show. So please, think about doing that today. We really would appreciate it. Second, of course, this is episode number 30 of Felony Friday so you know that means you can find the show notes with links to everything that we're going to talk about today at lionsofliberty.com FF30. My guest today is Eric Ray. Eric has been a criminalist with the Arizona Department of Public Safety in the Latent Print Unit since 2007. He is a certified Latent Print Examiner. Eric earned his BS in biochemistry and molecular and cellular biology from the University of Arizona. Eric is on the editorial board of the JFI on the special committee on latent print probability modeling. He is also the treasurer and webmaster for the Arizona Identification Council. Eric has published and presented extensively on reducing erroneous exclusions. And in his spare time, like I said, he co-hosts a podcast. The podcast is called the Double Loop Podcast, and it is a weekly show on fingerprint topics. Eric, welcome to Felony
0: Friday. Uh, hello, everybody out there. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, glad to be here.
1: Well, it's great to have you here, Eric. And you know, my favorite part of having a podcast is getting to interview interesting people and <laughs> getting to ask uh, questions. You know, that I've had for years. For example, I've interviewed experts in the field of DNA evidence and the field of false confessions. And I'm excited today to talk with you to learn about latent fingerprints. Before we do that, though, I do want to typically uh, with my Felony Friday guests, I get some background information first sure, sure. on you. So my Felony Friday audience can get to know you just a little bit better. So first off, we'll start at the beginning here.
0: Where are you are from? Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up mostly in the, uh, the Phoenix, Arizona area. Before that, my dad was in the Air Force, so we bounced around a little bit. But uh, then finally settled down here. Uh, also went to school down in Tucson, like you read there in the intro. And I uh, got married, have kids, and still here in the Phoenix area.
1: Okay, so how did you, after growing up in Phoenix? It- you, you said you uh, or i said excuse yeah. me you went to school in arizona there what got you interested i guess first of all what got you interested in biochemistry and molecular and cellular biology when did you decide to pursue that path
0: in high school i had a a science teacher that was really interesting and um Towards the end, it was like a, an optional class to take a biochemistry for a semester. And it was mainly kind of like a, an intro to organic chemistry class for high school students. And um, I was really interested in that, decided to to go further into that you know, in college. And from there, I uh, worked for a you know, year or so doing cancer research um, at the lab that I worked at you know, as a student but then kind of realized that I'd either have to kind of go all the way and get a PhD or do something other than research. Um, I really enjoyed that, but it just, when the family kind of started, it it just, you know, it wasn't going to work out. So I ended up actually going, working at the blood bank testing lab there. And then for a few years doing um, like industrial water purification before finally applying to uh, the crime lab and uh, getting hired on there. So with the, the lab that i work for the way it works is there's an opening they just put out this notification and you know dozens or hundreds of people apply and uh, they start sifting through and then when they eventually get a list a ranked list depending on how well you did on the on the tests and the interview process and then they just come down and say all right we have a spot uh, in this lab uh, for this position uh, with this field are you interested so it's not specific, I didn't apply specifically to work in latent prints, I just applied to be a, a forensic scientist there. And so when they said, are you interested in, in fingerprints, I said, sure, absolutely. <laughs> I had no idea, no background. First day, I was, heck, I mean, most lay people or lawyers probably knew more than I did on my first day. And um, pretty quickly found out that I really enjoyed the puzzle solving aspect of that and I was really good at it. So, you know, from there it's kind of become, you know, my passion uh, to work in this field and be involved in all sorts of different things, you know, from, you know, my actual job to all these other committees and and programs I'm a part of.
1: That's really interesting. That so you didn't actually apply for a position in latent fingerprint forensics. No, nope. I um, just applied overall, and then and they kind of asked you, do, do you want to work here? So I guess a question I, I would have about that is, did you have an interest in? I guess you obviously had an interest in criminal justice then to to go down this
0: path. Right. Uh, that, you know that was an interest that I had, had. You know, as I was kind of getting out of college, looking around to you know, where I wanted to make my career, that was one of the things I kept going back to and looking at. And you know, like I said, I did these other things for a little while, and it just didn't quite fit with what I wanted to do. And then, when I honestly, when I applied, I thought I'd end up in like um, toxicology because of the work I had done at the blood bank, or in the DNA section because of some of the work I had done in the cancer research lab. Uh, but they said, you know, we got their opening is in in fingerprints. Do you want it? And I said, yes, absolutely. And turns out, you know, I kind of lucked out because. Now knowing what I, do, I know now, I'd much rather be in fingerprints than in toxicology or DNA. What's the reasoning for that? Well, uh, the toxicology—it's a lot of um, you just kind of load up the machine and you know push go. It's a lot of just every sample is the same. You get a blood tube in, you run the blood sample, and you get the machine gives you a result, and that's just you know I, that's what I got tired of at the blood bank uh, was that it was just. It was just so kind of mind-numbingly dull. After you know the challenge of understanding and getting good at using the equipment and that kind of thing, it, it just got dull for me. Uh, and DNA is, oh, it was just a different thing. It's it's such a big section, at least in our lab, and it's, it's a whole different set of challenges, you know, to go about you know working through all the different tests and samples and. And all the different rules that they have to work in, uh, work through, and right. latency just seems to be—it's me solving the puzzle. It's not like a machine that's that I'm entering data into, and an answer is being spit back out.
1: I think I can definitely relate to that. In uh, in my day job, I've done you know different things over the years. Previously, I guess you know, a couple of years ago, I was stuck in a position where I was always analyzing these big construction schedules and. Okay. Every day was like the last one. I'll come yeah. in. I'll be looking at these schedules and updating these schedules, and you know, looking at you know different float paths and whatnot, things like that. But there was nothing exciting. Now I'm doing something a little bit different, a little more exciting with risk analysis stuff. But I think I can relate to where you're coming from with that. One thing I'm curious about: so you just applied for this position. You said you wanted it. You start working there. How much training was there before? That led up to when you were, you know, let go and and set free to start analyzing and then looking at some
0: fingerprints. Yeah, so there's no like, you know, bachelor's or master's degree in fingerprints, you know, and forensic labs kind of know that going in. So for myself and and most people that get hired, these labs know that you're going to be basically useless for the first year or so. So it was about 15 months before I was actually set loose to, you know, quote unquote, work a case on my own. They're still I mean, we still have so many quality assurance procedures that there's there's reviews throughout the entire process. But it was that long of training both in-house with experienced examiners and going to, geez, half a dozen outside uh, training courses by you know, leading experts in the field and a big conference to bolster the information and training that I got uh, within the uh, the organization. So it was that whole process before... And then a couple of tests along the way to demonstrate that I was, you know, capable of not screwing anything up before I was uh, released and signed off to do actual casework.
1: Okay, so uh, let's just jump right into this talking about latent fingerprints. Sure. Just some, some questions I've always wanted to ask. You know, you see the the crime scenes, the crime shows on TV of you know the detective coming in and you know dusting the scene for fingerprints and you know finding something and. Taking their time, and uh, I don't know, what do they put? You put tape down or, or how you get it? So, how, how does that all work? And I guess, how realistic is that depicted on television?
0: Uh, it's kind of some things are kind of correct, and other things are just wildly wrong. I'm not allowed to watch CSI anymore because uh, <laughs> uh, my wife told me that I yell at the TV too much. So, there are a couple episodes that really stuck out for me it was one is the when. Oh, it's the guy that played uh, Morpheus in the Matrix movies. He was cast into CSI, the, the Las Vegas one, in one of those later seasons. To, like, you know, be in charge of the lab. He was a doctor and had all his qualifications, but he'd never done, like, the scene work before. So they take him Lawrence out. Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence sorry. Fishburne, that's it. <laughs> they take him out to this crime scene, and they give him powder and a brush, and the, kind of, the episode starts with him dusting for fingerprints when he's never done it before and that would never happen and you know he's kind of trying to get the fingerprint off this knob and they say oh you've used too much powder let's go try to look for fingerprints somewhere else that is just just—it's just not the, the way it works so in general yes the fingerprint powder it's basically carbon black it's kind of similar to you know copier toner really fine it gets everywhere and you you know, kind of get your brush into it. Usually on the TV shows, they're very clean white brushes, but in reality, the brushes would be, you know, already all black from, from other uses in, in previous scenes. And it'll just get kind of a light twist as you uh, deposit more and more powder onto the print. Out here in Arizona, where I'm at, it also might involve, you know, there's with such a low humidity, you might have to rehydrate the print in order for the powder to stick well. So you may just be uh, breathing kind uh, of like a deep huff of breath onto it. Obviously, this would be after any DNA uh, collection had been done so that you're not you know, breathing your own DNA onto the evidence. But that is really only for things that are like um, cars or outside of cars or windows, things that are hard or glass, or shiny, the things that when you look at it, you can see fingerprints on it, like your car windows. Lots of things that you may collect at a crime scene are things you don't necessarily readily see fingerprints on. So those are just collected, bagged up, and sent into the lab for analysis in the lab itself and not actually at the crime scene.
1: So another question about you'll see on TV shows or in movies, you know, uh, someone uses a, a gun to shoot someone and then they'll just wipe the gun clean and put it down. How easy is it to wipe your fingerprints off of something? Do they just come right off?
0: More or less, yes. It depends a lot on the surface. So for your glass window of your car, I mean, that's a pretty easy one for anyone to test out themselves. If you kind of look through the window in the right light, you can see the fingerprint really well. And just wiping over it with a cloth or even just with your hand again, you can kind of get a, an idea of how much pressure it takes to wipe off. Now a gun, guns and ammo are actually fairly poor receivers for fingerprints. You know, it's definitely possible to leave fingerprints on them, but it's not as common as the TV shows make it out to be. And, you know, on, on TV, it's basically guaranteed, if you touch a gun, guaranteed you've left a fingerprint on it. And that's just not the case, um, mostly because the part of the gun that you would hold on to, the grip, is textured. It's made that way so that you can grip it. So usually when we're processing items like that, they'll have the dna analyst collect dna from the textured grippy parts because those might hold on to skin cells and it's just the smooth shiny parts that we do for fingerprints Uh, so the the magazine is typically a little shinier so that's pretty good a nice chrome revolver would be really great for fingerprints but like a glock handgun is a really dull gunmetal Finish. It's kind of even textured, so it's way more difficult to get prints off of that kind of surface. Now, there's a whole other section of items of evidence called porous items, like paper. And that's also a really good receiver because the sweat from your finger would soak into the paper or envelope or whatever other kind of porous substance that it is and then that you can't really wipe that away because it's soaked in it's you know the the sweat has invisibly soaked into the uh the paper and you can't really wipe it off
1: it's interesting so i, I guess a follow-up question to that and i you i know the answer is probably gonna be depends on yeah. the on the surface <laughs> somewhat i mean say you have a, a solid surface and you have Pretty, you know, stable conditions. You know, good humidity. Well, how long will a fingerprint stay where it is? Will it stay until, you know, it's affected in some way? Will a fingerprint naturally degrade over time at all?
0: In general, you can say that they tend to degrade over time. There's extreme examples like I've heard of of old documents from like 50 years beforehand uh, being processed. Uh, Usually with paper, the chemical that we use to process is called ninhydrin. It's a uh, amino acid stain. You have to be careful not to get it on your actual skin because it will turn your skin purple. Uh, but it then turns the prints purple on the paper. And I've heard of prints like that lasting for like 50 years. There was a famous case in England where a guy was, well, I don't think it's been proven yet, but I would say that he was wrongfully convicted of a burglary uh, because his fingerprints were found in this vase. And the well, my best and other fingerprint examiner's best guess is that he had actually been at a shop uh, looking at vases to purchase to put in his shop, uh, like going to like a, a warehouse store to get stuff for, to put in his shop. And this was one of the vases he touched and that had eventually been sold and you know, bought by somebody whose house was later robbed. And then they found that print. And this was years later. So hmm. under controlled circumstances, they can stick around for a while, but if left outside in the weather and blowing dust and dirt and rain, they will then tend to degrade. But it's it's tough to – it's not really one of those things you can put an actual physical number on it because there's no way to tell what happened to it, uh, what may have rubbed up against that surface in the intervening days, weeks, or months, or years.
1: That's really interesting. So you talked a little bit about how one of the reasons that you you enjoyed working with latent fingerprints, working in this field, is because there's you know there's some different things. It's manual. It's maybe a little more labor intensive. It's going to challenge you. So what is the process for comparing two fingerprints? Does it come down to, to the person like yourself analyzing them when you're looking for a match of fingerprints? I'm sure today that, you know, with technology, that that is involved to some degree. But can you talk a little bit about that and maybe how the process has changed, how you've seen it change over your time working in the field? Sure.
0: Yeah, when it comes down to it, it really is, you know, a person looking at two fingerprint impressions. So just kind of overview of that. It starts off, uh, you'll look at just the unknown or the questioned or the latent print. And you'll look through there and you're, you're looking for... Features that you can compare. And that can be large scale features like the overall pattern that the print makes, or cores or deltas. Now, cores are, if you look at your own fingers, it's kind of the rounded part right in the middle. And the deltas are kind of down to the sides. They look like kind of like Ys, it's just three lines coming together. But those are features that would be, you know, more or less in everyone's fingerprint. So the the uh, features that we're really look, uh, looking for that are specific to a certain person are the minutiae. And these are basically either ridge endings or bifurcations. So if you look again really closely at your fingerprints, you can see the little lines there run along, and then one of them will stop. That would be a ridge ending. Or one will split into two ridges, and that's a bifurcation. So, what first I'll do is I'll go through and mark as many of those as I can see throughout the unknown print. Um, just okay, I see one here and I see one here. and you know usually there's you can mark anywhere between usually 10 to 20 or 30. If you get much past 30 or 40, you may just decide to stop because you've kind of reached an overwhelming number of points and you know, that's going to be enough to make a decision either way. And then you'll put down beside that your known print. Now, you can get that in one of two ways. If the, the officers have a suspect, you may just get in the suspect's fingerprints and put that right next to this latent print. But you may also not have a suspect in a case. For me, it, it seems to be about 50-50 whether we have a suspect or not. If there's not a suspect, then we can enter that latent into the APHIS system. That's where technology really you know, gets involved here. And that's really doing the same thing again, marking out all these minutiae, but also marking the direction that they're flowing so that on this computer space, you can think of it like a you know, a Cartesian map. You have an X coordinate, a Y coordinate, and then a theta angle direction that the ridge feature there is facing. Uh, and then what APHIS does, and this is really where TV gets it wrong, is on TV, all of a sudden, they start flashing you know, faces on the screen, and then all of a sudden, one of them pops up. Well, first of all, that would be really annoying to have a computer just <laughs> making noise and flashing faces at you all day. But, you know, I guess works on TV. But uh, That'd
1: be cool, like one time. Right. Like, like, right, okay. I don't need to see all these faces keep flashing at
0: me. I it's want to enter mess. another one. Can you work on more than one at a time? <laughs> yeah. So what, uh, what it does actually, though, is, is takes those points that you've marked and then compares them to every set of points in all the fingers in the database that you're searching. Which is pretty incredible that they've been able to program this to happen. And it actually works. But... All those comparisons each get a score of how closely they match up. And then the computer sorts all those potential candidates with the scores and gives me the top. I usually ask for, I used to ask for like 25, but now the systems are so good, I just ask for five. The five top candidates through our state system, and then I'll do it again through the the federal system, which is... I think up, we're up to 100 million different people or a billion different fingers. So, you know Everyone's got 10 fingers. And I then look at those top candidates that's brought back to me. And about maybe a quarter or a third of the time, one of those, to me, looks like it matches up. You know The other two thirds, three quarters of the time, none of them match. So I just say, okay, none of these match. So getting back to the process that I do, you know, I, I, Now that I have this exemplar, this known print, I put it side by side. I'll look generally at one of the big features, like I said before, the core or the delta, and start there in the known print. And from there, I start looking at these these, these different minutiae that are there. So, okay, I see maybe a, a ridge ending that if I count two over to the left, there's a ridge ending. And then my known print two to the left, okay, it's there. So they will go look back at my latent and see what else do I have nearby. Oh, there's a bifurcation if I go three ridges up. So then in my known, okay, one, two, three, yep, there's a bifurcation here too. And I just keep doing that over and over again, you know, to see in the case of an identification that everything matches up, that all of the, the minutiae have a corresponding minutiae in the known, and that they all have the same unit relationship between each other, the same number of intervening ridges and the final step then is the decision time. Now, if if I'm looking at that core delta, you know, look okay, two ridges to the left, there should be a ridge ending here and there's not. I may double check that with a couple, you know, going to the right or looking next to the delta instead and seeing that difference means okay, it's an exclusion. If I see all those features lining up throughout both prints, okay, then that would be an identification. And then the other decision I could reach is inconclusive. And that would be either there's not really enough features corresponding to say identification, and there's not really those obvious differences that I see to say exclusion, or it could be that the exemplars are incomplete. I just don't have the right section of finger or palm to compare. So for one of those three reasons, really, I might be inconclusive. And the final step is just handing it off to somebody else to double-check my work in a verification.
1: So when it's an identification, it's not a uh, there's not a degree of probability attached to it or anything. It's you identify that these match. You pass it off to be checked. Someone checks it. They confirm, verify the match, and then then that's a uh, identification. Is that?
0: Yeah, correct? it's an extremely difficult problem. People have been working on trying to come up with a probability for fingerprint comparisons since the 1890s. Wow. It is a difficult problem to solve. I've talked a lot with people that are working on this problem. One of them, if users want to look up specifics on you know actual published articles that deal with this, one of them is uh, Dr. Cedric Newman who's up in South Dakota right now. He's from Europe somewhere. He's got a crazy accent. But uh, he's done a lot of papers looking at this. And uh, even he is recognizing how difficult a problem this is to solve. So one way to put this is, okay, so with DNA, it's actually set up perfectly for statistics. Every person can have you know two copies of that gene, from one from your mom, one from your dad. And they can then measure out in the population how many people have this exact specific thing. Usually it's a, a repeat of letters. So do you have in this section, do you have eight copies or do you have nine copies in a row of these letters? And you can just start counting people and they have this exact same thing in each person. And you're dealing with a, a molecule that's linear, you know, one dimensional, and there's no in between. There's one letter, then the next letter, then the next letter. It's they're like integers, you know. It's it's at one and two and three and four. With fingerprints, you know, you're looking at your finger. It's a three-dimensional object that you've then pressed down onto a two-dimensional surface to make this transfer. And that all of these features they don't just happen in a repeatable way. Any of those features can be facing any direction and appear at any point in this x y coordinate. With not just you know at the integers. Uh, of one, two, or three, but at any decimal point, even across this map, so it's just a, a multiple times more complex problem to solve. People are still working on it, but we don't have a reproducible way right now to give a probability.
1: In this world we live in of uh, large data and quantify everything, you know, maybe fingerprints just aren't something that
0: can be quantified. Yeah. I and I mean, there's giant databases, uh, you know, that they've been working on. Like I said, with millions and millions of fingers, but it's just hasn't been solved yet. It may, at one point, get there, but to put your listeners' minds at rest, the biggest study that's been done so far this is back published in 2011, I believe, looked at accuracy of how accurate latent print examiners are when they reach this identification decision. And this was like 169 different examiners. Each examiner did 100 comparisons. Uh, About 60 of each of those comparisons were IDs. So with all those thousands of decisions that were made, when the examiner said ID, they were correct 99.8% of the time. That's before verification happened. So if with that study, you gave it to another just random person in that mix, nobody made the same mistake. So theoretically, every mistake would have been caught in that study.
1: Theoretically, right? Because there have been some cases recently that have made the news. And 99.8% of the time, I mean, that's incredibly accurate. But as Jim Carrey would say, so you're telling me there's a (laughs) chance, chance.
0: right? Exactly. (laughs) I love that movie. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yes, there is a chance.
1: The case that comes to mind for me, and uh, I know you know about it, because we talked about it in the pre-show chat, but I actually, I forgot about this. I wrote a, uh, before Felony Friday was a podcast, it was an article I wrote every Friday for about two years, and I wrote about this in December of 2015, uh, the Melissa Nalen case. She went on a tour in the uh, county jail, in Inyo County Jail, and she was going through security just on a tour. They took her fingerprints and... She was flagged as there being a warrant out for her arrest for a felony in Indiana, in Dearborn, Indiana. So they arrested her and at the time that I wrote this, she was still being um, detained. I believe she hadn't been extradited to Indiana. I'm not sure if she ever was, no, no, she was. But eventually she was cleared of it. So can you talk through I mean, I've listened to one of your previous podcasts before on this. Can can you talk through this a little bit what happened here?
0: Yeah. Uh... This happened in December uh, 2015, so it's you know six, seven months old. I haven't heard any updates recently of anyone kind of explaining exactly what happened, but I can kind of go through uh, from what I know of how these computer systems work and stuff, what might have happened. So, yeah, she was in, in jail for two weeks, and you know, she got her, her prints rolled when she went on this tour. And generally, when that happens, the computer sends your prints, into the state database and it gets compared against, you know, everybody there. And this is a little bit different kind of world. This is the 10 print world where you know you're looking at 10 full fingers, not the the latent prints which are usually, you know, a part of just one finger. So mistakes in the 10 print world are are incredibly rare because of just the amount of information that they have to look at. And they're usually actually turn out to be more clerical errors, like the wrong person's name was typed into the computer when the prints were rolled or something like that. In this case, though, it looks like her print was sent through California, no problem, and then it was sent to the FBI to check against the national database. And when it was there, again, this is just me now kind of guessing a little bit, it seems like her print had a fairly high score against a uh, another person, this person from Indiana. So that information was sent back to California. Now what's supposed to happen at this point is that there's supposed to be some technician that then looks at the two fingerprints to say whether or not this you know, relatively high score actually means that it's a match. And it doesn't look like that actually happened. That they just got this message back from the FBI and then assumed oh, somebody must have looked at it. But it Again, my impression is that was just an automated response, and then that mm. people at Inyo County didn't follow through with what they were supposed to do of actually verifying it. So after two weeks, her husband is like going out of his mind, finding all these records that proves that she was in like San Francisco at the time that the arrests had taken place in Indiana. It was like, you know, uh, payroll stubs and all this stuff. And finally, he convinces the judge in california to get somebody in indiana to actually compare these fingerprints i actually talked to the guy in indiana he was in a, a class that i taught out there last year and he did the comparison and said i mean i, I can kind of see that there were some similarities and just like basic pattern but he said it was very easy to tell that they were two different people and then after that news came back to california uh, she was set free so that's that's kind of my impression of and partial guessing as to what happened in that process, but it's crazy that this person that really was not living a criminal lifestyle, that was not that shouldn't have been, you know, uh, suspected at all. That no one just bothered to look at the fingerprints. It would have just taken five seconds just to look at them and say, okay, no, these are actually different people, and then it would have all been cleared up. It's just that no one bothered to do that, which is mind-boggling for me. I I don't understand why that wouldn't have happened much quicker.
1: It's scary, and you know, it it makes me not want to go on any tours of any jails anytime soon.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I don't know, maybe one of these one in a million things. I can't imagine this occurring, you know, with any kind of frequency, but yeah, definitely something to be aware of. And if you're ever, you know, accused of something, especially with the 10 print side, which is just so much easier to, to deal with. And, you know, you, you know that this wasn't you, but they say that the fingerprints match. Find somebody to do it or get a copy of them, or just, you know, insist that they actually review that and look at it again. And that's for the most part when you look at, at fingerprint errors that have occurred, which are very infrequent uh, over time. But virtually all of them have been cleared up by having another expert look at the comparison and then flag it and say, okay, this is not correct.
1: Okay, another case I just want to touch on real briefly. I know we're, we're running short on time yeah, here, yeah. but this is actually a woman in 2002 was convicted of murder, yeah. murder of her neighbor. This is in Indiana also, so I don't know what's going on in Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> so she had her conviction reversed, fortunately, but there was a faulty fingerprint analysis. This was Lena Kanan. Yes. And you're familiar with this case as well. Yeah, very familiar. What happened here?
0: So uh, it came to light, with an examiner named Kathleen Bright bernbaum uh, who's actually from Arizona. I've known her for a number of years now and she was uh, asked by the defense to finally take a look at this fingerprint after the Lena Canaan had been in prison for a number of years. So it turns out what happened is that um, this uh, elderly lady had been murdered in Indiana. They collected all this evidence and one of the things they collected was a uh, prescription pill bottle. They developed a fingerprint on it and They were ready to get it compared, and I believe they'd actually sent that fingerprint off to the Indiana State Lab. I also know a lot of the people there, there are some top experts in the field that actually work in uh, Indiana. And I don't know if the local agency was just worried that it would take too long or what, but a detective from the neighboring agency had said, oh, I can do this. Get the, the fingerprint and send it to me. He had, had, he had gone to a 40-hour or a you know, one-week tr- training class at the FBI something like 30 years previously and had not been doing regular comparisons of fingerprints since then. Even then, it was just a, a completely inadequate training. But he insisted that he could do it. So the, uh, you know, the agency where the homicide took place let him do it. And he identified... Miss Kanan as uh, you know the source of this fingerprint, and basically entirely on that identification, she was convicted. And then finally, you know, after five or six years, this examiner out of Tucson, you know, you know working privately in her spare time, reviewed this comparison, and pretty quickly saw that it was an error, and she had been comparing you know latent fingerprints. Virtually every day for like 30 years, she was a you know, very well-seasoned expert in this field. So then she finally brought it forward. You know, the defense, you know, uh, told all this information to the prosecutor. To their credit, the prosecutor's office, as soon as they found out, had it double-checked by the Indiana State Police. And then the prosecutor and defense both petitioned the judge to have Miss Kanan released. So even though this was a definitely a screw-up initially, I guess on, to their credit, they didn't drag their feet and try to keep her in jail. As soon as the prosecutors figured out or found out that this was a problem, they also petitioned the judge to have her released. So the uh, the, guess the moral of that story is, is making sure that your expert's actually an expert. It isn't just some detective that likes to play with fingerprints in his spare time because he took a class 30 years ago for one week unbelievable yeah it, it seems
1: like the uh, the common theme is it's not a problem with you know fingerprinting it's the human element people getting in the way or yeah. causing procedural errors where there shouldn't be
0: yeah absolutely and it you know it was a failure by the prosecutors to rely on this guy on that agency to not send it to the experts at the state on the uh, the judge to allow this guy to to testify, even though he wasn't qualified, and on the original defense attorneys for not hiring their own expert or challenging this guy more on the stand initially. It was just a failure all around.
1: Yeah. Well, at least they caught it and this poor woman's not still in jail. Exactly. I wanted to ask you about your business. You're a busy man. (laughs) As I said, you have a, uh, I think I said you have a consulting business, a training business, and also, you're working in the lab and you have the podcast. So, if you could just talk a little bit about maybe the uh, the reasons why you started your, your latent fingerprint training business and your consulting business.
0: So, first with the podcast, if anyone wants to listen to us, we've been up for about three years now. i have got 130 some odd episodes. If you just search the internet or your podcasting app for Double Loop Podcast, that'll get you there. And we'll link to it in the show exactly. notes as well. And uh, you would mentioned it before of just kind of an, giving an idea of how to do the comparisons. I'll give you a link also for a good YouTube video of how to compare fingerprints. And even uh, I've got a, um, a Google uh, Drive folder with some examples that people can play with if they're interested as well. Cool. But for the the training business, I do training for other latent print experts, uh, and it really focuses on the exclusion decision. Most of the field has been really focused on identification since its beginning 100 years ago, and uh, now there's more of a focus on exclusions. And uh, with that study I had mentioned, our error rate for identifications was fantastic, but our error rate for exclusions was actually fairly low. So that's the focus of this class. Uh, I've been, I've trained uh, all the FBI examiners. Uh, just a couple months ago, I even went to uh, Taiwan and trained uh, their examiners for the national police there. Uh, so it's been pretty successful, and got to see all different parts of the world now. For the consulting side, you know, I, I'm, you know, I hear stories like the Lena Kanan and the Melissa Nalen case, and it just makes me want to offer these same services. And the expertise that I've built up to other people that might need it. So it's also at my website, both the training and the, the consulting side is at rayforensics.com. So if you know anybody that needs you know, an expert eye to look at some fingerprints for defense or for a private uh, case, uh, you know, it's not a criminal law, if it's like a, a civil case, uh, you can go to that website and, and there's all my contact information there. I even make fingerprint artwork. Like I'm obsessed about fingerprints. I just want to share that, that knowledge and that obsession with other people as well. That's awesome. And I will link to
1: all this stuff in the show notes. Sure. Um, I also link to, uh, that, Uh, The doctor you talked about in South Dakota, Cedric Newman, was it? Yeah. I'll link to his work as well. Really an interesting conversation today, I think, Eric. And I know from my perspective, if I ever find myself in any trouble, if I'm falsely (laughs) accused of a crime, I'm giving you a call. Okay, It's going to be one of my first phone calls.
0: Sounds good. (laughs) If you get a chance to actually look at the samples I have on that folder, it actually is really fun. If you like doing like Sudoku or the old Minesweeper game. This is the same, for at least for me. It's the same part of the brain that I use for this. It's actually fun. So, hopefully, people get a chance to do that as well.
1: Maybe it can be the
0: new Sudoku. Exactly. You can make an app for that's, it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's my idea. Okay, no stealing. <laughs> sorry, sorry. All right.
1: <laughs> all right, all right, Eric. Well, thank you for spending some time with the Filling Friday audience. I, I really appreciate it. All right, thank you for having me on,
0: and uh, you know, glad to uh, to be able to share all this with everybody listening.
1: All right, thank you what an interesting interview this was today with Eric Ray you know going into this I knew that I had some questions especially with the two cases we talked about about how it's possible to for someone to be falsely implicated with their fingerprints or to be convicted of murder based on fingerprint analysis and it was interesting that it came down to it was human error it was uh, some maybe bureaucratic error or procedural error it didn't have anything to do with uh, you know fingerprint technology or anything like that. Another aspect that I thought was really interesting, and Eric talked about it, that he really enjoys the work of comparing fingerprints. It's like solving a puzzle. So I really do want you, for that reason, check out the show notes for today, and I'll tell you about that in just a second. Before I do that, I really wanted you guys to check out Eric's website, rayforensics.com. At that website, you'll be able to find links to all of his training courses that he offers there, the consulting services. And, of course, his podcast, the Double Loop Podcast. You can also find that, of course, by just going to iTunes, searching Double Loop, and it'll pop right up for you. I really encourage you to check it out. There's a lot of interesting stuff that they do talk about on that podcast. So be sure to check out the show notes page as well, because Eric sent me a video that I will include in the show notes page, which is going to actually go through step-by-step step on how fingerprints are compared. So I think it's going to be a really cool video to watch and educational for myself and hopefully for you guys too if you get a chance to watch it. I really do encourage that. Guys, if you're still listening to the show at this point, if you're listening to me talk, that means that you're probably liking it a little bit, which I really appreciate. And we really appreciate here at Lions of Liberty that you spent some time with us today to learn about latent fingerprint analysis. But if you're enjoying it, please share it. We would really appreciate it if you could share the show on your social media platforms and also be sure to follow the Lions of Liberty on Facebook and Twitter. You can also join our private Facebook group, All you have to do is search Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook. The group will pop up and we will get you approved as quickly as possible. The group is really growing quickly. There's always new conversations every single day popping up and a lot of great conversation, a lot of great discussion, and even a little bit of debate going on back and forth. It gets a little, just a little bit contentious at times, but it's fun. It's all good fun and I really encourage you guys to check it out. We have three shows every week here at Lions of Liberty. And that can be a lot to keep track of to remember to go and you know download a show or go to our website and listen to the show. And if you want to do it that way, that's cool, that's great. If you want to listen on YouTube, that's cool, that's great also. More power to you. But if you just want it to come to your phone, if you just don't have to think about it and just have your phone automatically download it, you might want to think about subscribing to the Lions of Liberty Podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. It makes the process a lot easier. I do it for a lot of other podcasts and the Lions of Liberty Podcast as well. It comes right to my phone. I just click on it and play it. It is wonderful. And that way, you can guarantee you won't miss out on any of our content every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday with Felony Friday. We, of course... We have a new podcast and you don't want to miss our new feature that we have. It's hosted by Mark Clare and Brian McWilliams, and it's called Mr. Johnson's Liberty Hood. And what they do is they break down the good and the bad of presidential candidate Gary Johnson's campaign. So you definitely don't want to miss that. It's freaking hilarious. I really enjoy it. A lot of our people in the forum are talking about it. We have hashtags going every week. A lot of funny stuff that they talk about on that show. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that. Just one last note and then I'll let you guys go. If you want to contact me, if you have any uh, stories you want me to talk about or someone you'd like me to interview on Felony Friday, you can contact me, Felony Friday, at lionsofliberty.com. So please think about doing that if you have something you want to hear. As always, guys, thank you so, so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up. And the fire's of liberty burning.